We're teaching a series this month throughout November called Legacy. Really designed to inspire, remind us to live lives that are bigger than ourselves, to live for something bigger than ourselves, to consider what it would be to live life in such a way as the impact of your life would continue long after you're gone. That's what I think it is to live with legacy in mind. In a day when so many live for just the here and now or live just for themselves, I believe as followers of Jesus, we're called to live for something higher. And so we're, we're looking at different characters of the Bible, like Abraham and his example of faith, or Rebecca and her life of generosity. We're looking at you know, characters like the Apostle Paul, who just represents passion and these ingredients of leaving a life of legacy. But tonight, I want to teach about worship, David's legacy. I'm going to speak about worship tonight. The, the key text that we've been using throughout the Scripture is found in Psalm 2, verse 8. Uh, we're in the, the New Passion Translation. It says, ask me to give you the nations and I'll do it. And they shall become your legacy. What a thought that you and I could live in such a way as we follow Christ. That nations, generations be, could become the legacy, the inheritance of our lives. So today as, I, as we, we, we look at King David together, you know, I really want to focus on how your life of worship and your worship toward God can create a legacy. Of course, you know, David was famous for being a king. He was the second king of Israel, followed Saul, and was really appointed by God uh, a king in Saul's place when Saul abandoned God. And so, he, you know, he's, he's a king. He's also a warrior. I mean, he's famous for slaying Goliath and was successful in battle. But I actually believe that his success as a king and his success as a warrior in battle were anchored in his heart of worship. I believe that was the key to everything. You may or may not know that David actually wrote at least 77 of the 150 Psalms in the Bible. You know, so as well as being a, a worshiper, a warrior, he's writing these incredible Psalms and poems and and uh, there could well be more, but that's just the, the ones that we know the authorship of. In fact, those Psalms still inspire songs and worship thousands of years later. He was a talented musician. In fact, one of the first things that we know about him in the Bible is while Saul, the, his predecessor, was still king, he would bring in David as his musician to soothe him. Saul had you know, abandoned God. He was being tormented by evil spirits. But David's musicianship brought peace to him at times. And I believe that, that this heart of worship, though, was the foundation of, of David's life. And I'm hoping to show you tonight why you and I are determining to be worshipers is key to living a life that matters. You know, David's background is kind of interesting. He's believed to have been as young as 12 to 16 when Samuel the prophet came to anoint him as king. I was thinking about what that moment would be like on the young end of that scale if he's 12 years of age. I've got a 13-year-old thinking about that weight of that moment, uh, the knowledge that you would be king. And you know, he, his name in Hebrew meant beloved. And I think that's something that you see in his life as he has a love for God and a revelation of God's love for him. And that was important because he had plenty of opportunities to get discouraged or to walk away from that identity. In fact, even the moment I mentioned when Samuel comes to anoint the next king, I mean, this is kind of rough. You know, the, the prophet Samuel says to his father, Jesse, I'm coming to your house. And everybody knows he's, he's anointing the next king and his own dad doesn't even bring him in. He doesn't make the shortlist in his own family. 
That's rough. All the other brothers, but they just oh, it wouldn't be David. He's out with the sheep. That's terrible. And, and Samuel, when he looks across the brothers, he sees the oldest and he thinks, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. He, he looked kingly, I guess. We talk these days about being presidential. In those days, it was being kingly. And uh, this is what it says in 1 Samuel 16. He says, do not consider, this is the Lord rebuking Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so I think his heart was his key. His heart of worship was the key. He's a humble shepherd boy. He's a, he's a worshiper and a warrior overlooked even by his own family, but goes on to become a giant slayer, a king, and a part of the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. What an amazing story. And here's this for a summary of a person's life. God himself says of David in 1 Samuel 13, he calls David a man after my own heart. What a thing. And it's not like, if you know anything about David's life, he lived a perfect life by any means. But God himself says of him, that is a man after my own heart. So I want to speak a little bit about what worship is and how worship is so important to our legacy tonight. And the first thing, if you're taking notes that you could write down would be this, is that worship is more than a song. A lot of times when we say worship, what comes to mind, and I understand why, is, you know, the however many minutes of singing we do at the beginning of a service. And of course, that is a part of our worship, but I, I want to stretch your definition, have a fuller, multi-dimensional understanding of what worship is. And maybe if you're newer to you know, the things of Jesus and church life in general, I mean, even what we do at the start of the service can be a little bit confusing. It's like, wait, is this like karaoke, you know, short of a little bouncing ball, it can kind of seem that way, right? I remember years ago when Andy and I were still dating, we went to a church service in Washington State with her brothers, and one of them brought a, a friend to church who'd never been to church, and uh, he saw all the hands raised in the air and the pastor standing on the edge of stage and the worship's happening, and he leans down the row and says to us, man, a lot of people have questions. And I realized, I was like, I guess it kind of does look like we've got questions when the hands are in the air. But I was like, fair enough, though. I mean, it's not exactly self-explanatory half this stuff, right? Worship can seem a little bit mysterious, but I, I believe it's more than a song. But if you'll allow me a little irony, uh, I want to make my point that worship is more than a song by talking about a song. I know that seems like a contradiction, but go with me for a second. One of the most famous worship songs of the last century was a song called The Heart of Worship. It was written by a uh, worship leader, songwriter by the name of Matt Redman in the late 90s and uh, you know, he was part of an incredible church called Soul Survivor. It's still there in, in Watford, north of London. And that little local church had birthed this incredible kind of a revival, like a conference that would happen in the summer in the south of England. Thousands, tens of thousands of youth and young adults would come. Many gave their lives to Christ. And you got, you know, if you know some of these names like Tim Hughes and Matt Redman and Martin Lazell and all these different incredible songwriters, this movement of worship coming out that's inspiring the nation. And yet, by their own description, the home church kind of was losing its way when it came to worship. He said the, the congregation was struggling to find meaning in their worship. And so he says the, the, there was something missing. And he says, uh, so our pastor did a pretty brave thing. The pastor, Mike Pilavachi, said he decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season. And we gathered with just our voices. 
His point was that we'd lost our way and we needed to get back to the heart of worship to have everything stripped away. And so Mike, the pastor, gets up in front of the church and he reminded them to be producers in worship and not just consumers. That's a big thought. Are we being producers or are we being consumers? And he said, he asked this question, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? So the way he describes it in the article that I was reading is, is Matt said, honestly, that moment in the service when he first asked the question, it was not rhetorical. He literally asked the question and then waited in awkward silence for the church to respond. What was the offering that you brought today? And after a long silence, it says, eventually some people broke into a cappella songs and some heartfelt prayers, encountering God in a fresh way. And before long, we reintroduced the musicians and the sound system, we gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus. He commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstance and the setting. So the heart of worship simply described what happened. This was a song he wrote in his own devotionals. He never actually expected other people to sing it as he wrestled with what worship is all about. But the, the, these are the lyrics of the song. The heart of worship is this. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. And this is the chorus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. See, the song is an overflow of a worshiping heart. That's where we get it wrong. The song itself is not really the focus of the worship. The song should just be an overflow of what's already happening in my heart. And that's good news if you don't consider yourself a very musical person, right? <laughs> Sometimes you might, you know, stand next to somebody who feels like, you know what I mean, they've got this beautiful voice and you think, you know what, people want to claw their eyes out when I sing. You feel like you're tone deaf and can't hold a melody or remember the words and you think that makes you less of a worshiper. Here's the thing, this is kind of paradoxical, but actually, you know, you might consider yourself the worst singer in the room, but heaven might consider you the best worshiper in the room. Since it's not about holding a tune or nailing the lyrics, it's an expression of the heart. And actually, the opposite is also true. Isn't it also possible that you could have a beautiful voice, sing every word just right, nail the melody, and actually not be worshiping at all? It could just be Christian singing, which is not the same thing as the heart of worship. It's all about the heart, which is my second point tonight. Worship is from the heart. So it's more than a song, but secondly, it's from the heart. Worship, to, to put a point on it, is not something that primarily comes from the mouth. It's something that primarily comes from the heart. And one of King David's most famous moments in the Bible was when they brought a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, really representative carrying the very presence of God. They brought it up to the city of David, the, the city that he'd conquered, Jerusalem. And as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which was a huge celebration, a milestone for them as a nation. They were sacrificing all along the way and dancing and praising. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, just watch his heart of worship here. 2 Samuel 6 verse 14, it says, Wearing a linen ephod, 
David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. And as the ark was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Might be helpful to know as a little bit of background here that she is the daughter of the previous king, Saul who gave this daughter to David because of his exploits in battle. But as you can tell, they had a difficult relationship. (laughs) So she despises him for his worship and how free he is. And it says in verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, and you read this with sarcasm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the servant girls, uh, the girls, the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, this is so important, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house whom he appointed ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. This is so important. He says before the Lord twice because he had the audience of worship right. He understood what the heart of worship is all about. She was despising him because of how she felt it made him look in the eyes of people. And he's saying, it was before the Lord. He had a revelation. My worship is for the audience of one. And so what's his response? He says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by the slave girls of whom you spoke, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You know, there's something just so tragic about living for the opinions of others, for the crowd. If you live by their praise, you die by their criticism, right? And David had a revelation. No wonder he could dance so freely. Scholars disagree over what he was wearing. You know, some people say what he was wearing was like some kind of an undergarment, which would explain her comments about thinking he was half naked. Other scholars believe what he wore was really like a priestly tunic. But what you can read loud and clear into what she's saying is that you didn't act like a king today. Kings don't go about dancing. Kings don't get, you know, dance in the streets and shout and sing. And you should be more dignified. And David's response, I'll become even more undignified than this because he had a heart of worship. He wasn't worried about ego and trying to protect his image. He was free in God. So it's not surprising with that passion, the heart he has of worship, that towards the end, so this is early in his kingship, towards the end of his life now, David gets it in his heart to build a temple for God, where God's name would be glorified in the nations, a, a place where all of God's people, all the nations could come together and to worship the Lord as he loved to do. And so in 1 Chronicles 22, this whole chapter really is the basis of this message. 1 Chronicles 22 verse 5 says, David said, so this is his kind of proclamation right toward the end of his life. He says, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence, fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. And so David made extensive preparations before his death. And then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. And David said to my son, this has got to catch, this is so important. David said to his son Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. It was in his heart. That's where worship, real worship always is. 
And what I love about this, and it hadn't struck me till I was studying for this message, you know, this wasn't God's idea, it was David's idea. Sometimes we imagine all the great things done in the Bible were commands from God that somebody obeyed. And of course, some things are that. But in this case, do you know what the driving motivation of the building of the temple was? Somebody's heart for God. Somebody's heart of worship. Somebody's desire to lift up God's name in the nations. And God blessed what was in his heart. I love that. It was a thing of his own free will, which honestly, true worship always is an act of free will. An act of worship. Returning to, of love to God for all that he'd done for him. That's what worship looks like. It's from the heart. Which is why thirdly, Worship impacts the generations. It's more than a song. It comes from the heart and then it, it impacts the generations. It's really part of the very definition of legacy is to live a life in such a way as your impact outlives you. You know, yesterday, um, as a family, we, we honored uh, my mom's life. Yesterday is one year to the day since she went into eternity to be with Jesus. There was a lot of tears yesterday as we just kind of, Remembered her life and honored her. But I tell you, one thing that came up repeatedly about uh, my mom as we talked about her yesterday was legacy. And this incredible sense that although we're heartbroken that she's gone and in some, there are parts of me that just can't wait to be back with her again on the other side. There's also this incredible abiding sense that her life continues to have an impact in the here and now. Now, in, you know, in fact, even specifically in the area of worship, she was a, a musician and a songwriter, and especially towards the end of her life, she wrote these beautiful worship songs. I think, what a legacy. And then her children and her grandchildren, the legacy of worship going on. I think it's so important for us to live with that kind of a revelation. David did. When he was worshiping, he wasn't just thinking about himself, and he wasn't content to live in such a way as just his generation would follow the Lord, but he prepared the work for them that the generations would worship him. A couple of verses later in 1 Chronicles 22, it says, you know, he talks about having had the temple in his heart, but God has a tweak for the plan. <laughs> it says, the word of the Lord came to me and said, you have shed much blood and fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you've shed much blood on the earth in my sight, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. I love that. It's like God's reassuring David. We got a special relationship, but I'm going to have that kind of relationship with your son. He will be my son. I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So God's reminding David of the generational impact of his legacy, the generational impact of his, of his worship. You know, oftentimes at our different communities, particularly some of our communities that have services in the morning, will have the kids in during worship. And one of the reasons that I love that we do that is I think it's so important that the generations see those who are going before them worship God. Think about the power. When I'm not even aware, I'm just singing and reaching out to God that my kids might know. I've had a rough day or it's been a big week and they see me reaching out in faith that I've had some kind of a setback and I'm hanging on to Jesus. Like, I don't even realize sometimes that, yeah, okay, words are important, but the way we live our life is even more important. What's our example? And from time to time, you get these encouraging moments as a parent where you're like, okay, we're doing something right. I had one of those a couple of weeks ago. A lot of things we're doing wrong, but something right, right? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Ezekiel, our oldest, and, and I said to him, Zeke, you know, 
going to finish your high school application, and that's the whole thing in New York. Holy cow, 700 high school programs for him to consider. And the applications and the tours and the testing and all the things. And, you know, I'm like processing all the options and all the things. We're talking in the kitchen, and Zeke just says to me, it's okay, Dad, God has a plan. It's like, yeah, that's what he said. That's great. Yes. Let's keep it simple. Like, why am I? I'm the pastor. I'm the one, and I'm all like worked up and all the angles and the things and the game in the system. And, and Zeke's just like, it's okay, Dad, God has a plan. Simple faith, right? But where do they get that from? They get that in the house of God, not just us, you as well. They're watching your example of worship in the generations. Psalm 69, David wrote this psalm. He said, zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Now, this is a really interesting psalm to me. Because David is really speaking about himself. He's talking about his passion for God. In fact, he's so passionate for God that it's, it's to paraphrase, he says, when they insult you, they're insulting me. That's how he feels about his relationship with God. But he says, zeal for your house consumes me. Now, there's no, there's no evidence to think that he knew at the time this was prophetic. That this was a, a messianic prophecy, as they call it. But generations later, hundreds of years later, the disciples would quote the words of David. So think about that. Back here, he's just expressing his heart. Zeal for your house consumes me. Fast forward to the days of Jesus. He comes into the temple. There's money changes and, you know, people ripping people off and basically putting obstacles in the way of people being able to bring their worship and their sacrifices before the Lord. Jesus is outraged. He flips over the tables and the disciples recognize Jesus as the Messiah and say, and it says they remember it is written, zeal for your house consumes me. Now, David was writing about himself. But here we are now, his words, all these generations later, are inspiring others to recognize Jesus. What a thought. I wonder if David could have possibly known that as he was penning that poetry or that song, that his words would help even Jesus' own disciples to recognize this is the one. I love that thought. I wonder how our worship might have an impact after we're gone. The fourth thing tonight is that worship is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Hebrews 13, 15 puts it this way. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name, a sacrifice of praise. Do you know, uh, worship is something that we bring to God as an offering, and so sometimes in our 21st century Western Christianity, we get worship absolutely backwards. And we say things like this, oh, I didn't really enjoy the worship today. We should just sort of have a little moment when we, when we hear, I don't, I don't love that song. Okay, pause. It's not for you, right? That's what we should be thinking in that moment when I'm like, I didn't feel like I got anything out of the worship today. It's like, okay, I don't want to put too fine of a point on this, but we weren't worshiping you. I know, I, I, know, I know you don't love that song. Or this isn't your favorite worship leader, but we got it all backwards right now when we think it's an experience for me. Like I'm coming as a consumer because that's when we've turned it into Christian entertainment, right? But if our heart is all right, the real question is, did God enjoy the worship today? But did he feel exalted and lifted up? Was he glorified? Because that's really the barometer of whether our worship was on the mark or not. I mean, we sang it tonight, right? Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. That's when we pour out our hearts. It's about him. 
Now, it says it's a sacrifice of praise, and partly I think that's true because we don't always feel like it. I mean, I know you've never had this experience, but sometimes I don't feel like it. Anybody else ever been tired or just had a bad week? And you're just not into it. You're like, you know, you're just, you know, you're not feeling it tonight. And so you sing, but it's not from the heart. And you know what? This is the, this is the dilemma. We don't always feel like it, but He is always worthy. So that's why the Bible says to bring a sacrifice of praise, because I tell you, we got to close that gap. Whether I'm feeling it this week or whether I'm discouraged this week, whether I got the miracle this week or whether I didn't, whether it seems like I got a setback, but hey, we, we got to press in and bring Him a sacrifice of praise. But it's also, I think, a sacrifice because everything, in some senses, everything we bring to God is a sacrifice. Oftentimes when we, when we go from worship into a, a moment of giving, for instance, the MC will say, hey, we're going to continue in our worship with our giving. Why is that? Because, you know, whether you're bringing an offering, whether you're bringing a song, whether you're, whether you're serving on a team tonight, after the night, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll have next steps and people have the opportunity to join the team here at Liberty Church. Well, you know what? That's an offering. That's, that's an act of worship when we bring Him our time our talent and our treasures. In fact, we're only now a few weeks away from the legacy offering, which will be a very practical, tangible way. We sow together in the month of December, right across our church, into the nations, helping the hurting, planting churches, having a global impact as a local church. It's an offering. It's a sacrifice of praise. And that's exactly what David did in First Chronicles 22. He had it in his heart. He set up the generations to win, but it was his job to bring a sacrifice. It says in verse 14, he says, I've taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, wood and stone, and you may add to them. He's inviting other people. Hey, I'm leading from, from the front. I'm leading by example, but join me in this sacrifice of praise. He says, you have many workers, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, those skilled in every kind of work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, craftsmen beyond number. Now here's this opportunity as he invites people together into this sacrificial art um, act of worship. And he, he took great pains to bring his very best out of his personal treasury and then invite the nation to join him. It cost him something. Real worship is a sacrifice. There's an extravagance, a generosity, a majesty to it. I think, you know, it makes it clear that David himself would have loved to have built the temple, but it wasn't for him to do, but it was his job to resource the vision. I, I kind of, I want to challenge us too. We often think about what we want to do in our day, in our generation. We should dream big dreams, but I pray we dream dreams big enough that we can't achieve it all. Let's dream big Big dreams, like dream big dreams for God and for the nations, for the generations where, hey, maybe sometimes our job is just to set the generation up to do the things that were in our heart to do. That was David's opportunity to resource, to equip, to inspire, to encourage the generations to succeed. Lastly tonight, number five, worship inspires devotion in others. It inspires devotion in others. When I, when I see the faith, of people who have gone before me with a heart of worship serving God. I don't know about you, but it just, it stirs fire in me to do more and to believe more and to, you know, to go after God in fresh ways. Just recently, uh, I was hosting a conference call with a super inspiring pastor and church planter by the name of Ralph Moore. And Ralph's in his 70s now, but back in the day, he started a church called Hope Chapel uh, in Manhattan Beach, California, where 
my father-in-law, Andy's dad, Bob, fresh back from the Vietnam War, found Jesus. And in fact, Mavis, my mother-in-law, was Ralph's first secretary at the church, this little church in California. That fast forward now, from that church, they can trace today, just the ones they know of, 2,400 churches that have been planted out of that original church in his day. And as I listen to him talk about passion and the generations believing in people, empowering the generations, you better believe, like, it's got me fired up. He's stirring passion in me because that's what devotion, that's what a heart of worship does. It inspires others by your example to believe God for more. In verse 17, it says, David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. And he said to them, is not the Lord your God with you? Has he not granted you rest on every side? For he's given the inhabitants of the land into my hands, and the land is subject to the Lord and his people. Now listen, listen to this. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. Begin to build this, the sanctuary of the Lord God that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the sacred articles belonging to God into the temple that will be built for the name of the Lord. What's he said to them? Devote your heart. He inspired devotion in them. He led by example his own heart of worship. But then he called others to join him in seeking the Lord God. I believe when we live with that sort of a passion, the heart of worship, it draws other people to believe for more. Because here's, here's the thing. If you take anything from this series as we talk about legacy, let's have a deep revelation. It's bigger than me. Amen? That we would have a realization that God is working this majestic plan for the salvation of generations, of nations. And that we would have a heart to say, God, have your way. Use my life. Take my worship as an offering. Establish a legacy, not even for my name's sake, but for his name's sake in the generations in Jesus' name. Amen.